Welcome to the final lesson of our Approaching Hoofbeat series. This has been a biblical study of the judgment that God has planned for the earth during the tribulation. Are there any events that make us look even more closely on the horizon for his any moment return? Yes, resoundingly. But as we look at how events going on right now, and as we see that they are so similar to those spoken of as being during the tribulation, does that mean we're in the tribulation right now? As some beloved brethren feel, there are actually a portion of the church that think we're in the tribulation right now. Personally, I would say no, but it means we may be closer than we ever thought possible, which reminds me of the little boy that heard the clock striking, and it counted him up, you know, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and he ran to his mother and said, Mom, it's later than it's ever been before. That's what I think you all will think of. Basically, what we've seen is this portion of Scripture has three parts that we're looking at. From Revelation 6, we get the seals of doom, seven of them that usher into the trumpets, or the seals of death to the trumpets of doom, that's eight and nine. And then the bowls of wrath, which we're going to focus on. The question is, can you hear the hoofbeats? And, and for me, I love to read the news. And I actually not read it. I love to just scan it because there's so much that even that can become uh, oppressive and, and almost a, a bondage. Uh, but this series has, has basically had five parts. First, we saw that the Bible describes the tribulation totally in terms of Israel. All of the scriptures in the Old Testament call it the time of Israel or Jacob's trouble. It doesn't say the time of Jesus' trouble or the time of the body's trouble or the time of the church's trouble. It's called the time of Jacob, which is always a, a special term for the children of Israel. Secondly, we saw that, that what we are to focus on is the blessed hope of the church, which is the coming of Jesus Christ to take us home because he's prepared a place for us. And we spent an entire evening on that. Then we looked at the beasts of death that are coming, that are with us right now. In fact, uh, uh, one of the only phone calls I've ever gotten home from a visitor was on that sermon. And they left a message and said that their daughter could not sleep that night because she was so afraid of going to hell and uh, because of the sermon. And the father called to chastise us and said, you shouldn't scare my daughter. And as Don spoke with him at length, he said, you know, you should be more concerned about your daughter going to hell than about her being afraid of going there. And, and that's the concept that uh, we need to ponder. Then we looked at how to get ready to go after the tornado. Remember, if everything's going to be destroyed, how should we live now? Then last time, we looked at how to face persecution. Now, remember, the, if the church leaves before the tribulation, as, as I personally believe the scriptures teach, and we do not go through the seven years of Jacob's trouble, does that mean we're going to escape all problems? Definitely not. And we saw that if we just go through a portion of what the church has gone through historically up until this time, it'll be bad. Remember the seals of death, the trumpets of doom, the bowls of wrath. We've covered all of them in detail. Let's back up, and I want to look at them in the big picture, kind of see if we can trace some, some bigger pictures than the individual pieces and look at the foretastes of what is coming that we can see around us. Now, just to give you the big picture, if you remember the, what John saw in uh, 4 and 5 of Revelation is, 
kind of like a roll of paper towel. That would be a close thing from our setting. And that roll of paper towel, a scroll, which is like a big, thick roll of paper towel, had seven seals. And the purpose of that was that it's kind of like security codes. Like when you can come in and connect into a database, you, you might only be able to go so far in, kind of like we were supposed to have at Los Alamos Labs, but it didn't work. But, uh, you know, you weren't supposed to be able to get all the way to the top, top secret. Well, this roll had seven seals. So you, if you broke just the first seal, if that was your only level, you could only unroll it so far. And then the next seal unrolled it further and further and further. Well, the seven uh, seals lead to the seven trumpets. The seventh seal is the first of the seven trumpets, and the seventh trumpet is the first of the seven bowls. Basically, what the scriptures lay out is that in the middle portion, that is the, the seals, those uh, seals that, that break into the trumpets, the first four destroy the ecology of the earth. The last three are a demonic attack on the earth. In fact, it's just very interesting. We don't have time. I don't want to get off that. But there's so many things that are happening now, like the increased volcanism. You know what that is? That's not the Klingons and Vulcans. I'm not talking about science fiction. I'm talking about volcanoes, volcanism. And there is an increasing volcanic or, or Vulcan uh, condition in different parts of the earth that's causing fissures and, and all this eruptive stuff to go on. And that is very likely what might be happening during the, one of the trumpets, uh, this increased volcanic activity. Well, I want to take you through the bowls, and I'm going to do it real quickly. But basically, there are seven bowls. Uh, the first bowl speaks of the uh, incurable sores, these sores that ooze. It's really gross. It's in chapter 16, verses 1 and 2. And if you want to just track with me, I'm going to go through those bowls and show you uh, elements that are present right now in our society that just amazingly parallel this. The first bowl are the incurable sores, the sores that ooze. Basically, spiritually, this is a sign of the uh, unmitigated evil that's within people that just starts showing. But specifically, this very likely points to a biological holocaust. Now, I already went through all that, and a dear, dear, dear friend of the family came to me and said, I believe you. There will be terrible germs, and every orifice will bleed. Don't describe it anymore. So I'm not going to describe it anymore, okay? It's a biological holocaust, and all the pieces for that are in place today. Today. I mean, this week, this week, the Russians acknowledged that they took hundreds of thousands of tons of anthrax and buried them in an island in steel containers on this deserted island in the middle of the Aral Sea, the A-R-A-L Sea in Russia. And they first opened these drums and filled them with Clorox, you know, hydrogen or sodium hypochloride to kill everything. They sealed them up. And then they drove them on a train, went all the way across from Europe to the Aral Sea, and then they opened them up and put more Clorox in, hoping if there's anything left in there, and they slapped them shut and they buried them when Gorbachev took power. They were starting to be worried because stuff has started to die on that island. So they asked the Americans to go. They, didn't know. they asked us to go. And this week, the American team brought the report back and they said that the anthrax, the most 
deadly biological agent that the Soviets had developed has gotten out of those steel drums and is slowly starting to reproduce and kill life on that island. Now, the problem is it's not an island anymore. Over the last nine years, all the water has been drained off, and now it's connected to the landmass. And they said that people are coming in there, and they're so poor that they say, wow, steel, shiny steel, I want to take that thing home. And they don't know what to do. And they said, this is going to start contamination. That was an interesting note this week. And they said the Americans went in in spacesuits and discovered the anthrax. All the pieces for a biological holocaust are in place today. Secondly, and I told you about the biohazard, and by the way, that's a picture of uh, a viral transfer and uh, of a deadly pathogen, but we won't go through that. The second bowl is in Revelation 16, starting verse 3, and that is that the oceans die. Now, I told you about Pisteria piscinia, which is a, a horribly, it's called RFK Jr., Robert F. Kennedy Jr., the ecological activist wrote an interesting piece in the U.S. News and World Report. He said that the, the hog farmers of North Carolina have cultivated a bug from hell. That was the title of his article, A Bug from Hell. And what they found is when these hog farms spillages, their basins where they put just hundreds of thousands of gallons of raw, untreated hog farm waste, which, of course, you can smell for miles. If you drive through North Carolina, you can smell this stuff. It just permeates uh, the, the interstates where these big farms are. But every so often, these things break loose, and they spill down to the rivers. And this bug kills all marine life it comes in contact with. And when it's not killing the marine life, it inhabits the marine life, and everything, everybody that eats it gets sick. And they're even starting to attribute deaths to that. Well, everything's in place for the oceans to die. And this is... An, ecological holocaust, not just a biological, but an ecology. It says that the, the seas once filled with life become a stench of dead blood, a sign of man's hopelessness apart from God. And all the pieces for this are in place today. One hog farm last month lost hundreds of millions of gallons, and they say that, that for the next six months we're not going to know the full extent, but they figure at least one billion freshwater fish in the estuary going down into that whole Outer Banks area is going to kill them. But they said, what's going to happen if this stuff keeps going? And this bug from hell, as they call it, kept, keeps going out there into the ocean life. Well, we know sooner or later it's going to happen here or somewhere else because the oceans die. Thirdly, and, and again, I talked about even the nuclear contaminants. Thirdly, the scriptures say that the waters of the earth are poisoned. And that's in the third bowl, uh, starting with uh, verse 4. And all the streams of water on earth are poison. That's a sign of the absolute desperation as water, the imperative for life, is taken away. Now, now I call that a, a global holocaust because you can't live without water for very long. You can live without food for quite a while. And most of us could do well without food for a while. You can't live very long without water. In December, the United Nations said that there are one and a half billion people without drinking water. In other words, they're drinking runoff water that's polluted, they're drinking water that is contaminated, they're drinking water that is so bad that it's worse than, you know, being down and, and drinking uh, South American stuff that gives you a little bug. This is deadly stuff. But the scriptures tell us there's a billion and a half, UN tells us, but the Bible says that there will be an insufficient drinkable water for the whole world. But just the UN report saying one-fourth, one out of every four people does not have water right now. 
That's what they're saying. So you know what that means? The pieces are in place today, aren't they, for water problems as the Bible describes. Well, the fourth bowl, which starts in verse 8 of chapter 16, the sun flares during the tribulation. Very interesting. It, the sun, which keeps life sustained on earth, flares up. It blazes. It burns the planet. Now, a little bit later, I'm going to share with you that there is a coming cosmic holocaust. I mean, we're talking about all this other stuff is, you know, biological and ecological and, and, and global, but now we're getting an attack from outside. This attack is starting soon because the 23rd solar cycle, the 11-year cycle, the 23rd cycle is starting this fall. And I'll share with you, I mean, we don't even pay attention to all this because, you know, as long as all the lights are on, everything's fine. We don't even think. As long as there's food, supermarket, and, you know, we have our job, everything's great. In 1989, the solar storms were so intense that power stations in New Jersey ignited and burned just from invisible cosmic radiation hitting the Earth. In Minnesota, exploded transformers, one after another, across you know, the, the nice, beautiful land of 10,000 lakes. Quebec knocked out the power for 6 million people. You ever read the account of what happened in Quebec? Astounding. What happened in Quebec? Well, a cosmic catastrophe of unprecedented proportion is heading toward Earth, solar cycle 23, in late December 1999. And so all the pieces are in place even today for that one, for a sun flare, as the Bible talks about. The fifth bowl is the darkening of the beast's kingdom in, in verse 10. I think the only reason I point this out is the beast's kingdom. Very interesting what's going on right now. Darkness falls on one area of the earth, identifiable area, the beast's kingdom. What's that? What the Bible calls the revived Roman Empire. What is that? Well, that's a spiritual holocaust because when this beast comes, we know he's the antithesis. He's the exact opposite of Christ. And the eclipsing of Christianity and the dawning of a global resurgence toward paganism is very much present. I mean, if, if you have the audacity in Tulsa to say something unkind about the phantom menace, they withhold your coffee. That's what I experienced this week. I mean, they pulled their coffee cup back and they said, you mean they think there's something wrong with Star Wars? I mean, that's how loyal they are to it. Star Wars is, is an embodiment of paganism. I mean, that is the most slick packaging of Mormonism and of Hinduism and of paganism I've ever seen in one place in the whole world. And it's slick. And you know what? More kids know about Star Wars than they know about the Bible. That's how slick paganism is. Well, there is a global resurgence of paganism. And we'll talk about that in just a moment. Well, the sixth bowl uh, is a ultimate war, Armageddon, we know it as. And that is a military holocaust. And we know from the scriptures that's when the great dividing river, the Euphrates, dries up. A demon trio rounds up the armies of the Antichrist. And Armageddon is their destination. This week, the European community, in fact, it was Friday, declared that they will have a unified military force under a czar. That came right out of Brussels. They are appointing a czar. Now, in America, we have a drug czar and we have a gun czar and all that. In Europe, czar has a different meaning. The czars, that's a Russian term. That was the czar, the, the, the imperial leader of the Russians, you know, the, the, the absolute monarch of the Russians monarchy, one rule, one person, archie in the high place. 
But it's also, in Germany, Kaiser Wilhelm. That's the word for, for an absolute ruler. But all of them derive from the Roman Empire. Tsar and Kaiser are just derivatives of Caesar. So what they said literally is that they are appointing a Caesar. And the Bible speaks of that future Caesar as the future Fuhrer of the revived Roman Empire. So all the pieces are even this week falling in place for a global military holocaust as we read the news. Finally, Bowl 7, which uh, is starts in verse 17, uh, is this big quake, the largest earthquake that will ever hit the earth. What's amazing is uh, this is a geological holocaust, but did you know that it's almost like the earth's getting ready for it? Have you been watching the earthquakes? I mean, they're just kabooming. You know, China just had one. India just had one. Iran had one. A little bit before that, China had one. India had one. Iran had one. Oh, and San Francisco had a little one. And then, oh, uh, you know, Japan just had one in the North Island. If you track this at all, it's phenomenal to think about. But the greatest quake of all times is coming. Well, what's God's answer to all this? What does the scripture say? Well, it tells us if, if a solar storm's on the way, what should we do about it? And let me read this to you. What is God's answer to all this? Well, a weathered face etched with exposure to many years of the sun, a man who saw the Shekinah glory and many angry mobs, looks heavenward in Second Peter chapter 3. And that's where we're going to read if you want to be turning towards Second Peter chapter 3. And Peter gave us once and for all times the Christian stance when it comes to prophecy. And, and you know what's really sad is, uh, and, and I hear all these stories, and it's just like uh, they go to this conference, and all of a sudden they stop, they start doing that and stop that. And then they go to this conference, they stop doing that and start doing this. What we need to do is have a much bigger perspective. And I think Peter gives that to us in Second Peter chapter 3. And I would like you to read with me. I'm going to read to you and you follow along. The first 14 verses. This is a long text. What God says, Christians of all times are always supposed to be doing the more they're aware of the end in sight. Okay? We need to have not a pendular racing off to the mountains mentality every time we hear about something. We need to have the big picture and to be of all the people on the planet, the people that are calmest and pointing heavenward like Peter did as he faced Execution by crucifixion, upside down. What an awful sight. Let's read his word. And let's ask God to add his blessing to the reading of his word. Verse 1. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets, that's all those Old Testament scary prophecies. And of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior. That's all the New Testament writing. Knowing this first, the scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts. They're here. And saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. Uniformitarianism, which you can hear at any secular university and several Christian ones around the country. Verse 5. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old. That means from nothing creation by God. God spoke, and by his speaking, everything came into existence. And the earth standing out of water and in water, by which the world that then existed 
perished being flooded with water. The world perished because the secular people don't believe in Noah's flood. And now a growing group of Christian people don't believe in Noah's flood. And yet that's, that's God's proof of prophecy that the world that then existed with maybe upwards of a billion people were flooded with water and they all died. And by the way, Revelation says they're waiting. The sea can't wait to give up the dead that are in them. What are those dead? billion people probably that were flooded in Noah's flood. Verse 7, but the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, that means God's holding the whole thing together so it doesn't fall apart, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. Verse 8, but beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is a thousand years and a thousand years is one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Interesting. Peter, at the end of his life, at the end of his apostolic life, after founding all these churches, calls salvation, what the Russian Baptists call it, come to repentance. Verse 10, But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, the elements will melt with fervent heat, speaking of atomic uh, proportions of just total destruction, both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. The earth and everything in it will be burned up. Verse 11, therefore, and here's, I love his application, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, since everything you see apart from people will be dissolved, Everything. Our new highway that they're adding on to 169. All the new homes that are covering all the pastures of Broken Arrow. All of that's going to be dissolved and everything that's already here. Because of that, what manner, in the middle of verse 11, of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness? All prophecy should attach itself to our conduct and our godliness. Our holy conduct, our outward our godliness, the inward, real person that we are. Verse 12, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Verse 14, therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, not in fear, not in desperation, not in... Anxiety and not in, you know, whatever, without spot and blameless. That's what the Lord wants us to learn, and that's what I pray we learn. Let's bow together. Father, I pray that you, through your spirit ministering to our hearts, your word, would just bless us with, as Peter said, blamelessness, spotlessness, to be found in peace, in righteousness, in godliness, and in holy conduct. Help us to have that big perspective and help us to make little choices in our life, to make momentary choices that have eternal consequence, redeeming moments for eternity today. In the name of Jesus, we ask. Amen. Let me just start by reading the news to you. Remember I said that, the, that everything in those bowls we can see well, the first article is, beware a solar storm is heading your way. Uh, I called that a cosmic holocaust. Let me read to you from 
MSNBC, and I'm not partial, it's just, you know, it's the easiest one to get to. Let me read you a few uh, news headlines. Uh, the first one is about solar flares pose millennial threat. Now, this is not a prophecy conference. This is a profitable venture, you know, a, a Internet news company. And this is what it says. Uh, the new findings are, are significant because they flesh out the theories of how the sun works and how superstorms are created, the experts say. And he just goes on and on and talks about, in 1989, a coronal mass ejection knocked out power to a wide area of Quebec for nine hours. I've already mentioned that. Also, last year's failure of the Galaxy 4 satellite, which led to widespread communications outages, were both thought to be somehow linked to these ejections of cosmic energy. Well, March 18th, London Astrophysical Observatory, this is the heart of the article. A burst of solar flare activity around the year 2000 could wreak more havoc on satellite systems and power grids than the whole year 2000 computer problem. You know, it's interesting. They just say, oh, it's, there's going to be a computer problem. It's going to have problems. And this is going to be adding to it and exacerbating it. One senior British planner uh, said this, a surge of solar flares or solar storms can shut down power grids burnout satellites, and these will peak from late 1999 to early, as in April 2000. Solar flares could do damage far beyond anything year 2000 could hit us on that weekend, says the Deputy Chief Executive of Britain's Associations of Payment and Clearing Systems, whatever that is. The last peak of the 11-year cycle flares was in 1989. They're all, see, everybody's become a historian, and they've looked now at 11 years ago. The surge of atmospheric magnetic activity shut down the Hydro-Quebec power grid. You know what that is? That's one of the largest human building projects in history. It's bigger than the wall in China. They have just dammed the, the, uh, the hydro areas of Quebec, and they've dammed up all these things, and they're, they're using hydropower in an unprecedented uh, sphere. And it's so cheap that they're pumping it into the U.S. in the New England area the whole coastal area, and that's why they're not having problems with power because of this hydro project, and we're very dependent on it. And it says that that nine-hour shutdown ended up causing the grid to not come back on, leaving six million people without power for days. That's one event. He said, this is not my wife has been abducted by an alien story. This is a serious problem. It comes in cycles, and this cycle happens to coincide with the millennium. It's something that people tend to forget. Solar flares knock out communication satellites. A sneak preview was the solar flare activity that paralyzed communications last May, just over a year ago when the Galaxy 4 satellite was knocked out. In any case, the incident illustrated the impact one satellite failure can have. For three days, chaos ensued across the country. Forty million people's pagers stopped working. Television and, and data broadcasts were disrupted. Many credit card transactions were blocked. In fact, Bonnie was at Walmart handing her credit card when Galaxy 4 went down. And the girl said she took her credit card and went like this to put it in. She went, oh. She looked at her cashier. She said, they just went down. Hand it back. She said, do you have any money? Now, you know, most people don't these days have money. They just have credit cards, and they pay at the end of the month. That was one satellite. The satellite's operator, Pan Am Sat, was asked 
to repoint their antennas to other satellites, and of course they solve the problem. But the next solar flare peak is expected to have bigger impact on communication satellites than 1989 storm because so many more satellites have been put into place and are used widely for mobile phones, global positioning systems, and horror of horrors, the Internet. Do you realize how dependent we are on those things? I mean, just go anywhere in the city and look at how many people have their phone everywhere. Well, if, if you want to know what's going to happen, uh, this is what happens. A solar flare or a mass ejection from the corona of the sun is a solar explosion that equals a million hundred megaton bombs. That's one flare. Just one. How much the earth? I mean, by the way, that's 200 quadrillion pounds. How much the earth weighs? 200 quadrillion pounds. It is an equivalent blast to the entire mass of the earth. And that hits us like a wave, a million mile an hour wave of energy that hits the ionosphere and it disrupts all the magnetic fields around the earth. And all the signals and all of your uh, credit card bills and all of your cell phone calls and all of that just gets all wobbled up up there and mixed up and disrupted and bounces all over the place. Well, this will cause power blackouts, they say. It will block some radio communications. It will trigger phantom commands. That's what happened with Galaxy 4, they found. What that means is the satellite got a command and it turned on its rockets and started going away. It thought the Earth told it to move, and so it turned on its little thrusters and went and got out of It just left all on its own. How did that happen? Because of all this bouncing of the radio waves, it thought it heard a command. You know what these people are saying? When they get the first picture of a solar ejection coming this way, they're turning their satellites. Why? Because if, that, if those things get a command and turn on their little thrusters and start all going somewhere, they will never be able to get them all back because it, it just is an impossible thing to communicate with all those satellites if they all start moving in different directions. And if some of them turn their little thrusters on and come toward the Earth, it's going to be very interesting to see them all burning up in the atmosphere as they come in. Well, cellular telephones, GPS signals, uh, they even say don't walk in space if any of you were planning on doing that, okay? <laughs> Secondly, the second thing, the fourth bowl talks about the Earth warming up, not just the solar flare thing of the Earth burning, but it talks about this, this whole uh, warmer Earth syndrome that is heading our way. Basically, I call that an ecological holocaust. Do you know what, again, MSNBC said on June 2nd? Not very long ago, they said the ice shelf is melting. Well, it always has been melting, but this is what the article said. Scientists are amazed. It says, we have evidence that the shelves of Antarctica have been in retreat for 50 years. So this is not making the news. But in 50 years, the ice shelves have only lost 7,000 square miles of ice. You know what an ice shelf is? It's just a glacier that's over the ocean and it's floating on the ocean. There are a lot of them, the Larsen Ice Shelf, and there are several others. So these things, they aren't going to raise the water levels of the planet because they're already in the water. They're already floating on the water. 7,000 miles, square miles of this, has left in the last 50 years. So far in 1999, 3,000 square miles more has gone off. That's in six months. That's troubling. <laughs> They said, uh, if this continues at this rate, at 10 times the global mean temperature rise, 
over the last hundred years, what they're saying is basically this very, very boring article, but basically what they're saying is this, that in the last hundred years, the mean temperature of the Earth has raised by four and a half degrees, they figure. But they said it has come just now to the point where the air currents over the Antarctica, you know, the, the South Pole, are warm enough now to melt the ice year-round. That's never in their calculations ever happened in the history of the planets. It's starting to melt the polar cap, South Pole. You say, so what? If the South Pole melts at the rate it's melting now, they said, they said we don't want to alarm anyone, uh, and we don't want to cause any uh, alarm, but they said if it continues at this rate, there is a great possibility for coastal flooding. Well, all you have to do is calculate if the South Pole melts to any significance, it will raise the water levels 200 feet. That's how much ice is there. Do you know how far into the continental United States you have to go to get a 200-foot elevation? You know where the coast would move in? Uh, it would wipe out the whole eastern seaboard where so much of our population lives. I mean, New York would be gone, New York City. And on and on, you go all the way up and down the coast. Boston would be gone. Philadelphia would be gone. Washington, D.C. would be gone. That's just interesting. Here's another one that I thought was very interesting. Beware. The components for Armageddon are heading our way. And basically, I told you that was a military holocaust. What's going on? Well, the Moscow Tribune, it doesn't come through very well, but that's their headline, what it looks like. Here's a, here's a nice article. Threats of a new Cold War. I thought everything was settled down. I thought everything was great. Well, what's going on? Well... The Cold War instincts of the old Soviet Union still live on, the article says, at least in some corners of the Russian leadership. And, and the analysis of this article, done by Sir Charles Powell, uh, former advisor to Thatcher, the, the head of the English government, he writes the analysis of this article. And this is what he says. There is a clear-cut breach of UN sanctions going on with the old Soviet Union equipping Iran and Iraq. Why would they be doing that? The U.S. News and World Report last week or last month analyzed the fact that the new natural gas and oil discoveries down in the old Soviet states, the break-off states, they've just found a $4 trillion value of oil and gas down uh, very close to Volgodonsk, you know, just about 150, 200 miles south of where our church we're building is. And that center of wealth... They're making a choice right now, and America wants them to build a pipeline across Turkey and go out that way and send it to the West. Russia wants to build a pipeline through Iran and go down that way. And it says if the pipeline, the article says, if the pipeline goes through Turkey, then everything will stay pretty much status quo. They said if the pipeline goes through Iran, Russia has its long-awaited desire, which this article says, it wants to have a warm water port. Russia has always desperately longed at any price to have a foothold in the Middle East. Iran and Iraq are each in debt up to here to Russia. In fact, right now, every week, you hear about the American planes shooting down the, the uh, uh, when they get spotted with radar and they're shooting down the air defense installations. Do you know what is quietly happening behind the scenes, this article says? Russia is providing the latest surface-to-air missiles, but they're just not turning them on. 
And what they're doing is they're slowly baiting the American and British and whoever else over their pilots to just do all these. I mean, they can bomb at will these days in Iraq, and there's no problem. But they're going to get painted with radar one of these days, and they're going to have an instantaneous SAM-13, which is not one of these slow, uh, you know, the kind that in all the movies we get, you know, boom, you knock them out. They are going to be out-missiled because the Russians are putting their very latest technology on the line because they want Iran and Iraq to be their client states and to give them a warm water port. What makes the difference with all that? It's because they are united against Israel. That's why I told you when this series started 12 weeks ago that Russia's invasion of Israel does not have to happen during the tribulation. In fact, it would be very, very plausible for it to happen before the tribulation so that the Jews with the defeat of Russia, will be able to start building their millennial temple, which is sitting, uh, I mean, their, their tribulation temple, which is sitting on the mount during the tribulation. What will precipitate that? What's going on right now in Iran and Iraq with the Soviet rearming, the Soviet bringing into their advisors, the Soviet giving to them of their atomic secrets so they can be a menace for Israel, which right now Israel is probably the third-rated nuclear power in the world. Well, here's a, another interesting article. This happened on the 4th of June. Uh, by the way, this one uh, happened in May. This one happened in June. And this one is, the European Union vows to become a military power. Interesting. This is the article. The leaders of the 15 European countries decided Thursday to make the European Union a military power for the first time in 42 years. With a command headquarters with staff of forces for its own peacekeeping and peacemaking missions. Long an economic giant, the European Union Thursday had a common currency, the euro, in 11 countries. But when it comes to foreign and defense policy, Europe doesn't even have a telephone number, as Henry Kissinger sarcastically observed 25 years ago. Well, all that will change this year. The 15 leaders vowed on Thursday. By late 2000, according to the plan, announced at the European Union summit meeting here, a single foreign security policy czar will speak for Europe and carry out the military will of Europe. Nah, they'll never get it done that quick. But you know what that says? What everyone laughed at, the ten toes of Daniel's image. They laughed at that. The ten toes speak of the coming back together of the mighty Roman Empire. And everyone said, never not after Germany was divided, not after Germany was brought to their knees, not after two world wars. Well, Thursday, they brought it back together. Because everyone said, oh, economic, economics nothing. Trading block. It's a military power now, at least on paper. That is the warning of Armageddon. Here's the last one. Beware, the Y2K year 2000 glitches are heading our way. In the midst of all this, in the midst of an ecological holocaust, in the midst of a potential biological holocaust, in the midst of a potential military holocaust, in the, in the midst of a cosmic holocaust, all these solar flares, there's something else very interesting going on. And I thought it was very interesting to read what CBS broadcast on May 23rd on their 60 Minutes program. Uh, this is not the wackos that are selling, you know, survival kits. This is the mainline press now doing on, on primetime television. It says, back when we did our story in the year 2000, a lot of people thought it was a joke. It was a hype to make people out to buy new software. Today, no one is laughing, least of all the corporations and public entities of America 
who have spent so far an estimated $200 billion to fix the problem. Can you think of anything in history that anybody's ever spent $200 billion on? The whole lunar mission costs only $40 billion, and we got it done, and they're not even done yet. Everyone agrees it's enormous progress that's been made, and the computer glitch is not going to mean the end of civilization. We know. But the federal government is beginning to compare Y2K, that's the computer disruption, to a huge natural disaster like an earthquake, a hurricane, or a tornado that will disrupt people's lives for days, weeks, or even months. Wow. You only hear the prophecy people saying that. Now the federal government, the state government, and the news media are starting to say this. People who seem least prepared are the local governments, and you may find the computer bug hits hardest on the street where you live. I don't know about you. I just got a nose from Broken Arrow. You know what it said? It said, your house lies below the sewer pumping station. If there's any power outage, the sewer will back up into your house. I said, great. Thanks for telling me that, you know? Why did you pick now to tell me? You know, it's very comforting. Uh, here's the continuing transcript. One of the prime concerns for Washington, D.C. and other communities throughout the country is drinking water. Why? Because computerized water and wastewater treatment facilities are using these embedded chips in their control systems, and the chips in the water system that have been tested for Y2K have failed. Uh, Mary Ellen Hanley believes that Washington's water system can run without computer controls. But to get it running, she acknowledges she will have to develop contingency plans for water rationing. Can you imagine a city of 3 million with water rationing? Can you imagine a city of 700,000 that we live in with water rationing? Interesting. Uh, the interviewer uh, said, what would cause water to be rationed? The lady replied, if we lose our power through the power grid, this is on May 23rd. This is not last year. Everybody says, oh, they're using old newspaper. This is, this is uh, 14 days ago. She said this. If we lose power, we will not function normally, and we will have to go to considerable slowdowns in the process, and that could produce uh, rationing, for example, is what she said. So the interviewer says, so you're preparing contingency plans for no power? Yes, she replied. For how long, the interviewer asked her. This is the head of the water control system of Washington, D.C. Well, we're looking at roughly what we would consider the national average for power outage, uh, one or two weeks. And they said that on television. This is the people that, that this is not some wild, you know, uh, person in the hills of Idaho talking. This is, the, this is a very, very politically correct person in Washington, D.C. talking. And she says, at the government level, they think that there is going to be a one or two week disruption of power. So the interviewer got all excited. And he said, one or two weeks without power? She coldly looked in the camera and said, yes, one or two weeks. He says, do you think that's possible? And here comes political doublespeak. Right now, we don't think it's impossible. And then they come in to comfort us and they say this. And apparently neither does the Red Cross. The Red Cross Y2K checklist suggests that Americans stock disaster supplies to last several days to a week, including blah, 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 all this stuff. Well, you say, what do we do about that? Uh, this potential disaster, this uh, global meltdown. I mean, I could go into this, uh, just read the newspapers, what they're saying, and, and how, how liable we are. Every day in 1998, $1.5 trillion went through the air in through the ionosphere, bouncing around through electronic impulses. What's going to happen if there's a disruption of that? 
even a little disruption. A lot of stuff's going to happen. So what do we do about it? Uh, by the way, you probably have seen this. Our whole society operates on three levels, power, banking, and telecommunications. And, and if any one of those three breaks down, American civilization has great problems. Power, the nuclear, uh, the trains, and the coal. And, and uh, it doesn't even have the, the gas lines. Telecommunications, solar flares can hit them, and the satellites can be disruption. Banking, you know, we're so interdependent on the world that, that it's just terrible. And so this is called Doomsday Triangle. And basically, uh, I don't think Doomsday is coming, but I do think that we need to think about how we're going to su survive the next few years. And I, I suggest three things. Number one, and turn in your Bibles, uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 3. This is the best part. 1 Corinthians 3, 10 through 17. First of all, we need to build our lives fireproof. What does that mean? Well, it says in 1 Corinthians 3.10, the following. It says, according to the grace of God given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid the foundation, another builds on it. Now look at this, this is us, but let each one take heed how he builds on it. And he goes on to say, verse 13, each one's work will become clear for the day will declare it because it will be revealed by fire and the fire will test each one's work of what sort it is. What is this talking about? This is talking about the fact that you and I every day get to build our lives either out of gold and silver and precious stones, which means, like the little poem goes, only one life will soon be passed and only what's done for Christ, what? Will last. What are we doing for Christ? What are we building into our lives on a daily basis that counts for eternity? That's the first point. I mean, it doesn't matter if if there is a hurricane coming this way, which comes slowly, or if there is a flood coming this way, which comes a little faster, or if there's a tornado coming, which comes really fast. It doesn't matter. We live the same way, Peter reminded us. You and I should be building fireproof. The most precious possessions we have are not the ones that floods or storms or Y2Ks can take away. But that's how we live. And people actually commit suicide when they don't have the stuff. We need to start re valuing our lives and start building fireproof. Secondly, we need to, and, and turn back to Matthew 6, the second passage. I just want to remind you of these. Matthew 6, verse 19, and this should be, no matter what you do, and I'm not suggesting you do anything. Now, the government's suggesting you do something. By the way, the financial markets are suggesting you do something. Did you know that all the mutual funds have come to an agreement? They're going to do the end of the year closeout and distribution of all the capital gains and all that the first week or the second week of December. They always do it in the third week of the next quarter, but they're going to do it the second week of December. Why? Because they said something will happen at midnight of New Year's Eve. We don't know what's going to happen. We don't care what's going to happen, but they said we're going to have all the distributions fanned out. If Wall Street's doing that, God's people should be investing in heaven. And what does Matthew 6:19 say? Do not lay up. Very interesting word. Don't stack. You know what this word is? It, it's the word for on top of one another. It says, don't on top of one another put your most precious things on earth. Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, or where economic downturns wipe out. Verse 20, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven. Moths won't get them, rust won't destroy it, thieves won't steal it. Plus, here's the derivative, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. 
You know how to write out any future economic things? Have such a sizable investment in eternity that if on the short term there's a downturn, it isn't devastating. You say, how do you do that? Well, it's very hard in America because we, we are so living for our retirements. That's one of the weaknesses of our culture. But we need to invest in heaven and let the Lord apply that to you. And here's the last thing. And, um, and I just love uh, Hebrews 12. And you know it so well, but I'm going to read it to you anyway. Hebrews 12, 1 and 2 tells us uh, what we're supposed to do to, to go through whatever problems we might face. And that is, therefore, since we're surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. What is that? Hey, there's people who have gone through economic recessions, through famines, through floods, through earthquakes, through martyrdom, through sieges. Nothing potentially in the next few years compares with what the people in the Bible have gone through. They are the witnesses. That's why I love reading the Old Testament. I mean, those people went through losing everything, and Hebrews 11 says they took joyfully the spoiling of their goods. And what? How did they do that? It says this, Let us lay aside every weight and the sins which so easily ensnare us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Take a page from the notes of the people you know that are very sick in our church and are dying, and ask them what they're spending their time doing. I know, I get letters from them, and I talk to them, and I visit them. They're memorizing Scripture, they're telling as many people as they can about Christ, and they're making sure that they provided for their loved ones, and then they're seeing how much they can invest in heaven. You know, if we all live that way, life would be a lot less complicated. If we, verse 1, laid aside every weight and the sin which so easily ensnares us, and verse 2, looked on to Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despised the shame, and sat down at the right hand of God, look unto Jesus, invest in heaven, and make sure whatever you're doing tonight and tomorrow is fireproof. Now, what is my family doing? We're doing what we think is propitious for our family. What should you do? What you prayerfully think is propitious for your family. But you know what? I wouldn't alter anything. Just slightly make choices. Make. I think a great thing would be to maybe loosen up a little bit of that you know, eleven thousand Dow or ten six, wherever it is, and and finish off the church in Russia. Maybe help help with some some ministry. Maybe something that the Lord's laid on your heart, secretly invested. Just just send more money to heaven, so that when those downturns come, you can say, oh, I'm so glad I invested at ten thousand percent. I mean, what can the what can the internet stocks make you? Thirty one percent a year? That's nothing. God gives 10,000. If we really believe that, and I'll close with this. At lunch today, we did our normal talk through Sunday, and we were sitting around, and I was telling the kids what a blessing they were, and Bonnie was sharing, and it was a really sweet time. And I said, what really blessed me is I saw, you know, what some of you gave in the offering. And I know it's hard to give up money, but it's great to give it to the Lord. And one of our younger ones said, and I gave my two pennies in Sunday school. And I looked right at him and I said, did you know you will see those two pennies again? God promised a hundredfold. That's 10,000%. I said, you're going to have 20,000 pennies in heaven. His eyes got that big. He looked over at his roll of 50 pennies, trying to calculate with his little mind what 10,000 times 50 would be. That's childlike faith. That's what God wants from us. Mm-hmm.